Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On The Wing podcast. Special episode today to celebrate the retirement of longtime Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever Vice President of Government Affairs, Mr. CRP himself, Dave Nompson. Uh Dave, welcome back to On The Wing podcast. I, 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 I know that calling you Mr. CRP doesn't actually give you the credit for all the variety of conservation programs, but that's, that is the signature one of your career, isn't it? <laughs> you know, when, when a name sticks, it sticks. And yeah, it's been there for <laughs> so a while. So for folks that, um, uh, that are longtime members of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, they probably have read Dave's articles in the journals and, and know the name Dave Nomson. But um, for the listeners that maybe aren't as familiar, let me give you a, just a short biography of Dave before we not only celebrate his career, but talk about some of the, the highs and lows and, and some of the fun stories. But uh, Dave grew up in Clear Lake, Iowa, uh, where his dad was the chief pheasant biologist for the Iowa Conservation Commission, now known as the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. Following in his dad's footsteps, Dave went to South Dakota State University, where he got his master's in wildlife management and was hired by Pheasants Forever in 1992 as a, a regional rep which he only lasted in that position for a short time, which we'll touch on. <laughs> you know, we could, we could, let's maybe phrase that a little bit differently there, Bob. There's a good story there. Uh, but, but later that year, Dave became the organization's voice on Capitol Hill and ha has worked on conservation policies ranging from CRP to wetlands, grasslands, public access, sage grouse, prairie chickens, pheasants, quail, water quality pollinators. He has been the voice for Pheasants Forever in on Farm Bill conservation policy in particular, 1996, 2002, 2008, 2014, and 2018. Uh, I could talk for hours about Dave. Uh, one of the, my my favorite people that I've ever worked with in my career. Um, he, he's taught me a great deal, but we've laughed a lot, uh, including what's the word that, that you always bring up the, the word from a press release that, Oh, I put um, castrated, <laughs> castrated in a press yeah. release in a quote from you. And I think you like it now. Yeah. I think you were so were flabbergasted <laughs> that I said yes to it. Yeah. Because at the time it was a great description of what in the world yeah. I don't know. One of those rare moments doing. where the uh, uh the geez. the rawness of the political fight got the best of you and you say, Yeah, put it in there. We got castrated <laughs> today. Uh, so as as I prepared for this particular podcast, I talked to 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 Bethany and Bethany Erb and Jim Inglis, to two members of your team, 
the government affairs team to uh, that are carrying the baton now that you uh, you have retired to catch fish, chase a Labrador retriever, and and cook wood fired pizzas for the rest of it. <laughs> uh, Thank but, you. But Jim and Bethany Thank said, you. you know, Dave has been known as a technical policy guy, but he's also a great heel advocate, someone that understands political strategy and that is trusted by both parties. Let's start there. What, what can you say about being a person that has to balance political strategy managing all these congressional relationships yet with a person that has the science background that you have to deliver the habitat on the ground that science demands. Well, I, I got to tell you, Bob, it, it, it frankly used to be a lot easier in the early years. Um, things were a little less partisan, a little less divisive, you know, the, the rhetoric, frankly, wasn't as harsh as it is today. And so this is more of a challenge today. But, you know, I'm a wildlife biologist and you just you have to start with the science. You have to believe that facts are friendly. And if you present your case, your information and in our case at Pheasants Forever, it came a lot of this came from the field, just telling our story. Here's the program. Here's how our, our field team makes it work on the landscape. Here's the pluses, here's the minuses. Here's what we need to do to change public policy, to strengthen it, grow it, whatever the case is. How important is being a biologist for a government, for a government affairs? Oh, it's critical. It's critical. Your team, critical. Your te you've hired <laughs> biologists on the government affairs team. So uh, you're laughing, but... I, I do believe it's well, we critical, have. and I'm, no, I'm incredibly proud of that component. Well, you know, it's and it's it's it frankly goes back to uh, my first boss in our the original CEO of Pheasants Forever, Jeff Fendon, who hired me, and it was important to Jeff that you followed the path that scientists laid out to restore, in the, in the case pheasants nationwide. And so we had a number of wildlife biologists on our team. In fact, we were predominantly wildlife biologists at one point. I mean, we could all fit in one <laughs> tiny little van, right. the, whole, the whole team. And obviously things have changed, but um, the science was driving the organization and it continues right, today. So <clears throat> this is partly a celebration of your career episode because I think we can all learn a lot from your four decades. And, it, you know, there's, a, there's been a saying ever since Pheasants Forever got involved in your role, government affairs, that the, the pen is mightier than the shovel. Explain that. You know, that's, that's true. And, uh, again, that goes back to, uh, to Jeff. Uh, or Doc, as we called him, or continue to call him, uh, the first CEO. And it was, Doc had a vision. And uh, he and I got together, um, actually at the, you know, pushing from another Pheasants Forever team member, Russ Sewell, 
a bunch of years ago. And uh, he put us together, believe it or not, in a Sandhill Crane blind um, outside Stanley, North Dakota. Doc, had, Doc was a, he's an incredibly passionate upland bird hunter, bird hunter period. And he had never chased Sandhill Cranes, which is a unique thing at the time. And, you know, back in these days, very few people chased Sandhills. And, uh, you know, I happen to be one of them. Yeah, I've heard you uh, had a nickname. And, you know, yeah, yeah see, I was going to get that out there before you threw it out there. But, yeah, uh, if you ask some of the old guard from our field team who the heck Davey the Crane Man is, they're going to they're gonna smile. So here we are in a crane blind. And, you know, uh, hunting cranes is crazy, crazy thrilling. You know, you, you're just shaken. Because, you know, you can hear the, you can hear them for miles and miles away. And when they do decoy, and we used homemade decoys at the time, and we brought some birds in, and Jeff got to shoot a few, and uh, we just had an incredible time. But in the downtime, we're talking about Pheasants Forever as an organization and where it's going to go in the future. And Jeff adamantly wanted to be involved in federal farm bills for the reason you just talked about. The stroke of that pen can make a difference on millions and millions of acres. We've got a, a new organization here. You know, this is in the late 80s. We've got we've got a uh, a new farm bill with a CRP program that's just getting started to be put on the landscape. You know, what a great time to talk about continuing all that and into the future. Just because it's it is fascinating for some folks that maybe have never eaten crane before. Um, it, it, oh, filet right? filet Fla mignon of the skies! Yeah, incredible. It, it, it has a ribeye of the sky, yeah. right? Flying filet. Yes. Yeah. It, yeah. It, 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 they are <laughs> the other quote, and I thought it was yours, but maybe it was Russ's. No, what, what's no. the? I know where you're going with this. What's one too. the the quote about when when you shoot a crane? <laughs> well. This quote is attributed to someone else, not me. Okay, let's put that on the record here first. But I had a gentleman with me had crane hunted for the first time. And we it was one of those days where things just worked, which isn't very often with cranes. They're so wary. And we had three cranes come over the top of us uh, in good range and boom, boom, boom. And we had three cranes tumbling down. And, and I turned to him, and the man is just shaking. And it was just like... He just, the only way this could possibly be any better is if they burst into flames 10 yards before they hit the ground. That is one of the all-time great uh, hunting quotes, isn't it? It is. What you, <laughs> oh, gee, I guess. You know, and it's really kind of funny because I like to think that mm. I was there when this started. I was there. But yet I've heard that same line and story retold from other hunters, people in different states, you know, it's amazing how it's probably grown and, and maybe morphed over the years. I don't know, but I was there. <laughs> right. and that's what he said. Um, I want to go back in time and, and start. You're growing up in Iowa and your dad's the pheasant biologist. Um, that That's pretty amazing that you've become, right? And you're retiring now as one of the primary... <laughs> for all intents and purposes, pheasant biologists in the world. Uh, 
how how did that uh, well, happen? Were you super close with your dad? You know, I was. Uh, my dad, of course, part of the of what uh, became known as the Greatest Generation, uh, came back after service in World War II, and uh, became the biologist for the state of Iowa. So, as a little kid growing up, you know, I had the pleasure of riding with him while he's doing crowing counts, brood surveys. You know, even in the fall, uh, he was encouraged to throw his shotgun and his very, very poorly trained Springer Spaniel in the back of the car and go off and interact and meet with hunters. And so those are the kind of experiences I had with him. It was incredible. And, you know, that's on the front end of his of his career. And I'm just a little kid on the tail end of his career. Uh you know, near his passing, you know, and, and of course I'd worked for PF for a number of years now. This was back 20 years ago in 2000. Uh, at his passing, uh, <laughs> we're chuckling and laughing and telling stories. Just a wonderful, wonderful moment. And, you know, it, but he could get serious now. And then he turns to me and says, now, now don't screw up and lose the CRP like Ooh. we lost the soil bank program because he was always, always concerned that the soil bank that many of us right. hear about and and uh, talk about uh, disappeared from the landscape. And so he wanted to get that shot in there about keeping the CRP going for future generations. Yeah, very cool. Speaking Pretty of cool. future generations, there's a wildlife management area named after your father in Northern Iowa. Ah, oh, there is, there is. and. Uh, Matt O'Connor from our field team showed me that site before it was acquired. We're driving in, looking at the site, and, you know, who knows why or what happened. But all of a sudden, we're looking up, and here's a hen pheasant with a young brood running across the road onto the site. And uh, I'll never forget that either. Great little area there at uh, uh, Wall Lake in Iowa. And <laughs> I you, understand there's few roosters around there. So really? Maybe, I haven't, I haven't yet. I haven't yet. Uh, it's on my list. It's what, and I'm going to get there uh, this three fall. Years? It's been public so far. Yeah. And it's part of a, of a what's becoming yeah. a really, really nice complex with other acquisitions. So a uh, great little destination for somebody to chase a couple of those wily Iowa roosters. Um, all right. So you're growing up in a household with the chief pheasant biologist in Iowa, and you decide to go to South Dakota State. Um, at what point did you know you were gonna follow your the footsteps and go down this, this path? You know, uh, to be honest, it probably wasn't when I first went to Brookings uh, to become a jackrabbit. It was kind of like, you know, well, okay, it's time to go to college. And so it was, it was basically general studies and things. Uh, and then it was like, okay, uh, wildlife management, something that, that the university at the time hmm. was well known for. Um, and again, it became a connection to the Pheasants Forever field team. You know, we had, you know, biologist after biologist had a South Dakota State connection there for a long, long time. <laughs> I could see in your face, you're proud of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely. 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 How about out of school? I mean, you, you did a lot of wetland studies when you were at South Dakota, right? 
Yeah, I did. As I finished my master's work, uh, which was on Bobcat, by the way. Um, <laughs> I don't know why that's important, but uh, chased Bobcat around the Black Hills uh, for a couple of years. But um, I spent a number of years um, helping with research projects. We had a big national wetland inventory project, uh, moved on to a research associate position there with the faculty of the wildlife department, wetland functions and values projects. Um, and then that wetland kind of theme continued into my next position. Uh, I moved to the National Wildlife Federation uh, because I'd started to be very active in the local hmm. wildlife club uh, with the, uh, let's, let's just say the strong influence and insistence of my major advisor that this is important. So uh, that's probably, you know, Dr. Ray Linder was his name. And that was the connection that uh, as a mentor that encouraged me to get involved mm. with private conservation groups. So, uh, so I went to the National Wildlife Federation, moved to Bismarck, North Dakota, and spent five years working with a number of their state affiliates uh, out of an office that was called the Prairie mm. Wetland Resource Center. So the, kind of the wetland yeah, come back. continued. Uh, as, and, uh, as we talk talk through this conversation, yeah, it does. Yeah, uh, one thing leads to another, and then you end up in a sandhill crane blind, right? and you meet uh, Jeff yeah. Fenden, first president and meet CEO. Doc. Yeah, and he hires you to be a regional rep, right? He did. He did. I was hired as the Minnesota regional rep, regional biologist at the time, and I had like. I think 52 or 55 chapters around the States that I was, at Howard, I was trying to help. At this point in the conversation, Howard always inserts that, you know, that you only had that role for about <laughs> three weeks and he starts giggling. And, and then he talks about how you yeah. transitioned to government affairs. And it must've been, I'm, my assumption has always been the farm bill of 90, so 92 going it started to heat up for the, the 96 fire, yeah. right? Well, it became the 96 reauthorization, yes. So, you know, this 92 is when I went to work for PF. By ninety by the end of 93, 94, it, this was all farm bill, farm bill. You know, and these these chapters, most of them were, were so patient. You know, I'd be in D.C. working on something, uh, and they'd call and they need seed for a food plot or they had a, you know, a broken frame on a banquet item. And I was trying to help them out or I'd be at a chapter event. And DC would call and they needed help with, you know, testimony or meetings or whatever. Uh, it was quite a challenge for a few huh. years, but we all worked through it. <laughs> Did you? Yeah. <laughs> like that, did you it. have any political science, uh, any uh, education or background or anything prior to that? No. Huh. I wish the heck I so, had. So, I mean, you really were yeah. science-based. Yeah. Uh, so you're going into yes. D.C. letting science lead the way. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a biologist, yeah. and I still am today. How, how has that been... Yeah. Let's play the positive and negative. What's the, what, how's that been most beneficial for you? And how's that been a detriment? Well, I think it's been most beneficial because it kind of grounds you in, you know, your goals and objectives uh, on what you want to do. But 
you know, it's probably also limiting in the skill sets and the techniques and how to reach those hmm. goals and objectives through political processes. So trial by fire there. <laughs> Something else Howard would like it, to say. Do you have a, gu yeah. a guiding <laughs> philosophy or motto when it comes to, uh, when you work in, in Washington, D.C. on behalf of the organization and our members, is there something that's always in the back of your mind? You know, one of the things, and especially as the organization, as we decided internally, we were going to take Pheasants Forever to Washington, D.C. We had never taken our members there. We had never taken our CEO or our staff there, uh, our board of directors, never been to D.C., and so as we decided to take their voices to D.C., you know, one of the things that, would, that I would always talk to them about before they walked into any meeting was, you know, think a little bit about where the person is from, a member of Congress or a staff person, who do they work for, you know, what's the initial behind their name? Is it an R? Is it a D? Is it an independent? What is it? Think about that a little bit. I'm not saying alter your message. I'm just saying be cognizant of of the of politics and how that starts to blend in and mix hmm. with solid public policy. And, and how often you know we talk a lot about uh, conservation is bipartisan. Um, is that still true today? Well, it has it has to be. It has to be. If you want to, if you want to be successful in the House, you need 218 votes. You need 60 in the Senate. You need the support of an administration, and you know the uh, you need to be able to get that done. Frankly, irrespective, regardless of the the politics of yeah. the particular moment in time. If we to dial back to some of your words of your father, um, you know the soil bank. The soil bank went away. Don't screw up CRP, yeah. Davy. Davy the crane man. Um, <laughs> and I'm <No. laughs> probably weaving a couple different quotes in there from your dad and others. <laughs> but yeah, you know, we think about CRP. Uh, it was signed into law by President Reagan December 23rd, 1985. Uh, you have largely, your, your career has walked alongside CRP. And where yeah, it has. what's your perspective on where it's been to where it is today what are some of the some of the things you're proud of along the way and some of the things that have you concerned well um first yeah i think you have to re recognize that the original crp came on the landscape had absolutely nothing to do with wildlife or wildlife objectives period. It was a program designed for commodity supply control, thus price support, uh, and a little bit, frankly, soil erosion. That's what it was. That's what it did. And it was modeled after the soil bank from the late 50s and 60s. And it was modeled after a lot of set-aside type programs. So, you know, the economics of, of farming are what put the program in place. And, and frankly, farmers and landowners needed some big, big assistance right then. And that's, that's how CRP got started. Uh, and it, it's morphed and changed. It maybe evolved is a better word over the years. Uh, it needs to continue to evolve. Uh, 
I think that's what's kept the program going now for you know 35 plus years, and uh, it, it's what's it's going to keep the program going. Uh, if we continue to be creative and, and continue to change it to make it a little better, make it mm. a better fit on the landscape. Yeah, it, it, so the, you mentioned this. Um, wildlife was added um, 96. Yeah, that 96. was a watershed moment for, yeah. and for folks just to make sure everybody's on the same page. CRP, the Conservation Reserve Program, um, you know, takes <clears throat> yeah. and rolls land that – Farmers, landowners considered to be tough to farm acres, and they get a, a rental payment from the federal government to enroll it in wildlife habitat for the benefit of protection against soil erosion, um, protect water quality. And in 1996, the word wildlife was added to those benefits. And it, it wasn't by accident Right. I mean, what folks saw was that um, CRP was generating wildlife habitat on the land. Correct. You're exactly right. It was it was we talked about how wildlife wasn't in the original bill. Language wasn't there, but it was it was this wildlife explosion on the landscape, uh, especially for uh, sportsmen and sportswomen. You know, the explosion of pheasants and ducks and white-tailed deer and, you know, uh, grouse in the West, everything uh, hmm. that became the driving fo force, frankly, to keep that program up and going. Uh, you know, we helped uh, co-author publications uh, titled like America's CRP, America's Wildlife Legacy, uh, just because of what happened with the wildlife benefits and as a result, the law was changed. And, you know, in my view, CRP became a conservation program specific with soil, water, and wildlife objectives. And so this is my per perception, and it may not be right. So feel free to correct me. But my perception is 96 wildlife gets added. And then the next evolution of CRP is that practices were targeted to influence, to better influence specific species of concern. And, and what I mean is, uh, you know, okay. in 2004, uh, Bob White buffers, uh, upland buffers, really focused on in increasing habitat for Bob White quail was created. 2008, I think, the State Acres for Wildlife Enhancement practice was created where states could um, create CRP practices targeting specific species uh, of concern in those states. Pollinator practices got added. Is that an accurate assessment that as time went on, CRP was looked at as sort of a Swiss Army knife tool to achieve a goal for specific species, you know it. Uh, yeah, I think that's an accurate way to to think about it. Uh, you know, we had a number of CRP buffer practices that were getting started. Most of them targeted at very linear uh, habitats for water quality benefits. And so, again, we took a look at some of that. We saw the benefits from some of those targeted practices for specific species of wildlife, like you mentioned, the uh, quail buffers. You know, very, very small acreage practices, very, very high return on the quail side of things. 
if they're on the landscape. And, you know, we had to change work to change some other policies too. We had to, we had to work to allow, believe it or not, to allow grass to be planted on a terrace, Hmm. which was another conservation practice. But, you know, clearly a terrace without any grass on it, you know, it's not, not a lot of, it's not going to benefit quail or anything else for that matter. And, uh, you know, we, we had to use folks in D.C. to help change through appropriations language uh, some of the requirements for terraces to allow cover to be put, be put on them. And, uh, and Utah started talking about some of the changes to CRP with what became safe practices, you know, targeted practices by state agencies for specific wildlife pollinators and all the others. So the, the, again, it's it's back to my point of the program continuing to kind of evolve. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had buffer practices. We had we haven't talked about it, but the CRP crap language, right? Was which frankly struggled early in the bill, but uh, some states came forward with some great crap projects. Minnesota had a couple of them. Conservation reserve enhancement program where. You know, the state states would again decide, let's put a little something extra onto this practice in terms of uh, length of contracts, payment rates, whatever the case might be. And they're going to invest and kind of just co-mingle it with the federal CRP program. Uh, some great success stories came from that as well. It, it, when I think about CREP, I think uh, very targeted at watersheds really focused on water. Exactly. Yeah, like the Minnesota River practices, CREP projects here in Minnesota. Yeah, good example. You got um, multiple, like the Susquehanna in Pennsylvania. There's a multiple in Pennsylvania. Uh, Michigan has extremely successful CREP. Uh, Like you say, Minnesota River. And and, and then I I start thinking about the James River CREP in South Dakota. And that brings me to the next thought of the evolution of CRP in my mind, uh, because the James River crap dovetails into this as well. It's the component of access for public recreation, particularly hunting, being built on top of CRP. And so the term open fields in my mind is that catalyst um, legislation that's taking advantage of something that's happening out on the landscape and tying it to, to CRP. Is that is that an accurate uh, leap? Yeah, I know where you're going. We had a couple of members of, of the Congress from Kansas, uh, Pat Roberts and Jerry Moran. We had a couple other members from North Dakota, uh, Kent Conrad and uh, uh, Earl Pomeroy. Uh, both Republicans and Dems got together, senators and reps got together, uh, dropped a bill, and by 2008 it became part of the farm bill. And you know, I, you know, you can blame wildlife biologists or you can blame policymakers, but someone decided we'd better call that thing something else. So, oh yeah, let's let's call it VPA HIP <laughs> because <laughs> uh, we need a new acronym that no one will understand. Right? Uh, Voluntary Public Access Habitat Improvement Program. Um, and so today's VPA HIP uh, continues. It was reauthorized in the last farm bill. And uh, it really does marry up good wildlife habitat with access for hunting. Uh, 
it's a win-win for everybody. So, so those Kansas, uh, elected officials are looking at Weha, walk-in hunter access in the yeah, exactly. state. Yeah. And in North Dakota plots, pub, uh, private land open to sportsmen. Speaking Say, of go goofy acronyms. Right. We, right. we, we, we ha, let's go hunt some Weha. Yeah. Have... <laughs> Yeehaw for Weha, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. But then, you know, with the, the addition of the federal dollars through open fields slash VPA hip, which just, <laughs> just pains me to say uh, uh but it's it's been tremendously beneficial in creating you know olap and oklahoma walk-in access and you know there's yeah. more acronyms right but there are. wia yeah. in minnesota and iowa's got one. i mean in this these walk-in programs start popping up everywhere and that was critically yeah. important to not only did it create an access component to CRP, but that, in my view, it's created the public perception of CRP to broader America. Because now there's a little bit, you know, we all understand that wildlife don't care about boundaries. You know, they're born private land, public land, they're born all. But these walk-in programs now create a tangible benefit that every bird hunter in America can experience for themselves. It, they have, and, and they have really, really um, made it easy and so less complicated. You know, through these programs, you don't have to be contacting and finding individual landowners for permission to hunt. Uh, it's, it's as simple as, as getting a copy or downloading an atlas uh, and they're usually descriptive and tell you the types of, of species that are best hunted on or, you know, fished on these areas. And so it's really become a, a public access, public recreation program uh, with quality habitats. Yeah. So we're going to leave CRP for a little bit. I'm sure it'll come up again. But I, I teased earlier that we'd be coming back to wetlands. And yeah. part of your amazing biography is that you have served on the North American Wetlands Conservation Act Council. So NACA Council since 1999. During your NACA tenure, so you were appointed and reappointed by secretaries of the interior under four different US presidents representing two Republicans, two Democrats. That just seems unprecedented. Could that even happen these days where if you were appointed by an R that you would stay through well, by a Dem? Well, uh, I don't know. Maybe that's just. Okay, a, so well, you don't have to answer the political question. <laughs> how, how does the pheasant guy get appointed to be on NACA council? And, and, and let's first off, explain what NACA is to, to our listeners. Well, it, it's uh, NACA, again, another crazy D.C. acronym. Uh, the North American Wetlands Conservation Act, you know, uh, one of the senior authors was, uh, was Senator uh, George Mitchell from, from years ago. Uh, I had the chance to meet him a long time ago, and we talked about it. But, you know, just an incredibly efficient federal program that leverages 
limited amounts of federal appropriations, usually, you know, 30, 40 million dollars per year uh, with other sources and NACA Council helps guide the selection of various projects around the country that joint ventures and private organizations put together, again, all based on leveraging and matching their limited dollars Hmm. uh, with federal dollars from NACA. And it's all focused on wetlands restoration protection enhancement programs in mostly in the United States, but some dollars go to Canada and also to Mexico. So uh, hence North American. Uh, and uh, it's it's like CRP. It's just ha- it just has now built over the years an incredible, incredible success story. How many people on NACA Council? Oh man, is there, there's nine or ten. You know, there's uh, nine or dozen. ten, and the pheasant guys well, on there. Yeah, that's a little weird, isn't it? Well, yeah. it it's is. Kinda, until it's, you, no, it's just <laughs> until you boil it down to a couple of things. And the first thing. Wetlands, NACA isn't just creating protections for wetlands. You read any of the language and it says, and associated uplands. You know, newsflash here, most ducks nest in the grass along with our our feather. Our kinds yeah. of feathered friends, right? Yeah, and we've also chased a few pheasants out of some wetlands, especially once they're frozen and and uh, uh, winter cover from cattails, etc. cetera. Uh, wonderful havens for pheasants, white-tailed deer, and other wildlife at that time. Right. It's it's back to that you know constant refrain I hit on almost every podcast. It's the web of life, right? It's like quality habitat connects the dots for everything. Um, Good point. And the other thing that connects the dots is – yeah, you're appointed to knock a council as the pheasant and quail guy, but you've got an awful lot of wetland science in your background, which True. makes you a, you know, maybe not an obvious pick, but a natural pick when you look at your resume. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, certainly I like to think that my professional, you know, background helped in that process. But you mentioned, you know, this, this was happening back in 99. And in 2000, there was also something else happening back then. And that was a changing of the guard at the CEO position for Pheasants mm-hmm. Forever. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and of course, in 2000, when uh, current uh, CEO Howard Vincent came into place. So, you know, Jeff's out, Howard's in. And uh, it was like, hey, Howard, listen, I'd like to do this wetland thing, you know, and uh, uh you know, he was, he was, you know, like Jeff, uh, what's it going to do for us? Where are we going with it? What's it going to do for the organization? And he was just like, we're all in. Yeah. Uh, you can hear him saying that. Yeah. No doubt. So, so uh, at the time, in fact, you know, uh, there were other things happening. We had seen, I had seen the power and the kind of the strength of the conservation wildlife community when they got together around CRP authorization. Well, nationwide, we're also at this point trying to bring, uh, find ways to bring the entire community together on many, many issues. So uh, Howard, new CEO, and it was like he, you know, Howard and I talked uh, obviously a lot. And it was like, all right, Howard, let's go, let's go introduce you to the conservation community. And one of the ways that we did that was I had him come out to the charter meeting, what became the charter meeting for the American Wildlife Conservation partnership 
today's kind of umbrella loose structure that that helps all of the groups communicate. And so uh, I introduced Howard to a bunch of the leaders in the conservation community. I introduced him to folks like Jim Range, uh, let's see, Raleigh Sparrow from the Wildlife Management Institute, uh, heads of state agencies, CEOs from other groups. And so I was introducing Howard, uh, Pheasants River's new CEO, to this community. And here we are 20 years later, Howard has become a leader in that community. Yeah. So that's a cool story. Well, it, it, so a call back to an earlier podcast with Howard, uh, listeners that are frequent to this uh to, to our Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever podcast, recognize the name Jim Range. Mm-hmm. And Jim Range's name came up uh, when Howard talked about the handshake at a bar in Montana that led yeah. to our role in the Sage Grouse Initiative. And, yeah. And you knew Jim said, very I well. I did. I did. Uh, Jim and I were good friends. Jim, Jim actually helped us out organizationally in the early years uh, with the 96 Farm Bill. He was a huge, huge help to us in securing the support from uh, Senator Bob Dole from Kansas uh, to support CRP reauthorization back at the back in those days. Uh, an incredibly colorful, just great guy. We we miss he, Jim passed away way too early, yeah. and uh, we miss him every day in the conservation arena. What a champion! Uh, so we've talked a fair amount about CRP, talk about NACA, dig into your pot of acronym soup and <laughs> think about all those other conservation programs that you've worked on over the years. WIP, EQIP, Working Lands for Wildlife, um, you know, some of the new ones, SHIP, ASAP, you're surprised I even remember some of these acronyms, but what are what are the high points for you uh, on some of the programs beyond CRP and NACA that our members and our listeners should know about? Well, you know, you've you touched on some of them, and uh, and there's others, but the, the point I think the point is when you've got this entire suite of programs. Uh, all focused on different aspects of that agricultural landscape. You know, we've got programs uh, like NACA and programs like uh, part of CRP that can help put permanent wildlife habitat out there for the entire year. Then you add in a blend of new programs that can help us with uh, working lands on crop lands, for example. Uh, where we can do a better job with crop rotations or uh, just it, the mix of putting all of those types of habitat together. And you add in some buffers and some pollinator plots. And, and uh, uh, so all of a sudden you've got the whole suite, the whole, all, you've got all the tools in the toolbox that you need to manage the entire landscape. Hmm. When you're doing that, you're going to be you're going to be much more likely to be successful with what wildlife related uh, objectives. Let's talk about um, our our species in particular. Let's let's start with pheasants. What what's the greatest tool out there for creating pheasants in the in the suite of you know? Clearly, CRP has has been a boon for pheasants. What else? 
um, may our members, maybe they don't know about that's uh, been incredibly beneficial to creating habitat specific to pheasants? Hmm. Specific to pheasants, uh, you know, I'd, again, I'd have to say, first of all, you're right, Bob, uh, CRP has got to be first on the list. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, large acreages of grassland, period. That's what, it, that's what grows pheasants. Large tracts, large acres. Um, you aren't going to grow the pheasants that you need with small, isolated grassland tracts. Um, but they're also, those are also very important for other reasons, too. Mm-hmm whether it's water quality things or as corridors, as connectors for larger tracks and whatnot. So uh, again, you need the large tracks of CRP and, and you need uh, the connectivity from some of the buffer programs and others. Um, add in some pollinator habitat because every time I hear the word pollinator, you know, I'm a pheasant biologist. When you say pollinator, I think brood habitat. Mm-hmm. And they are exactly the same thing. So if it's good for monarch butterflies or other pollinators, it's great for pheasants. Quail. What are, what's, um, what, what are the programs that immediately come to mind when you're thinking about creating habitat for, yeah, let's focus on Bob white quail. You know, you'd have to go back to, uh, when we finally, and there were a lot of groups involved in putting together the policies with quail and the quail buffers. Uh, Pheasants Forever and what became uh, Quail Forever was, were just two of them. Uh, and there were many others. But, you know, as you mentioned, the president did come to Minnesota, did announce the, uh, uh, the buffer initiative uh, for Bob White Quail. Um, quail, you know, some of the land management practices that are available through like Conservation Stewardship Program or EQIP or some of the other working lands programs, mm-hmm. that's the target for quail. Uh, intensive land management. You've got to do the burning and the thinning uh, of habitats. And and if you do that correctly, uh, you can have a literal explosion of quail on that landscape. So it's a little bit different of a tact than with CRP, where in a lot of cases we were restoring initial habitats that had been gone for years. Uh, so again, it's just a benefit of all those various differing programs and how they work together. Step outside of kind of farm bill conservation, step outside of agriculture. What other legislation in DC have we been working on? And do you see as opportunities going down the road to create habitat for pheasants, for quail, for all sorts of different wildlife species beyond the agricultural legislation? Well, uh, we've talked about one already, and that's NACA, uh, which is an uh, interior-focused appropriation uh, for wetlands projects. Great program. Uh, But, you know, over the last 10 or 15 years, Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever have also started to be more engaged in things like the Land and Water Conservation Fund, uh, again, along with a huge coalition of voices uh, in support of that program and what it can do specifically for public lands in this country, because that's also important to us at, at Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Um, you know, we, we uh, since day one, have been engaged in the, uh, the campaign for restoring America's Wildlife Act, 
uh, a funding source potentially for our state wildlife agency partners uh, to help them with the with the you know, unfortunate decline in license sales and revenue sources, but yet this ramping up of incredibly expensive, you know, natural resource related issues that they have to deal with, say with exotic species or with just all of the various components of their state wildlife action plans. Uh, they need the funding to do that. Right. And so uh, RAWA, another acronym, sorry. Uh, <laughs> do yeah, you, have you ever created right one of these acronyms? <laughs> No, but we, you know, we got yelled at by our board member a few years ago when our board yelled at us and we had to prepare a glossary yeah, for our board accurate. of directors. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, that, that's just a couple examples. So uh, the organization, I think, has, again, evolved and broadened a little bit uh, in terms of, of getting engaged in a lot of other uh, federal policies and programs that really, really help, you know, outdoor recreation and both pheasants and quail. So- so three areas that I'm thinking about uh, that I'd like you to talk about that you, you, you frequently bring up in exec meetings and in board meetings, transportation, energy, and climate. There's a lot of habitat opportunities in each of those three, aren't there? You know, there really are. You know, it's kind of like if you go back to the, to the 60s and the, uh, uh, the Johnson administration, you know, Lady Bird Johnson, some of the original thoughts and programs for beautification along highways. Well, what were they doing? Pollinator plots, you know, brood habitats for pheasants and quail, uh, just for uh, uh, transportation. So those corridors and just think of the, the uh, you know, hundreds of millions of miles and acres that are potentially available uh, that could be better habitat for more species by planting more diverse, uh, higher quality mixes in those areas. That, that's again all we're trying to do, and 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 uh, they can serve as corridors. Uh, you know, roadsides and ditches are uh, great hunting habitat and opportunities in many many rural areas too. So, uh, transportation side is a is a natural connection. You know. Uh, and the same thing goes with energy and climate. And in climate, we're, of course, you know, I'm going to quickly talk about carbon and projects that sequester carbon naturally. And so all of a sudden, we're going to talk about planting trees or managing trees correctly, which will have some quail benefits. Or, we're, you know, in the prairie states, we're going to talk about deep-rooted native season grass plantings that can benefit pheasants. So, uh, but... You know, it's all about carbon and sequestering mm-hmm. carbon uh, to address climate change impacts. So as I'm going to transition a little bit to kind of a lightning round of names and events that I want to get your <laughs> your reactions to, because I know, I, you know, I've worked with you long enough to know there's some stories here. Paul Wellstone, a former Minnesota <laughs> Uh, Minnesota Senator. Um, yeah, he was. He, you were pretty, pretty close special. with Paul. You know, I developed a, a what I thought was a, it, well, it was. We, we had a great relationship and we used to enjoy some downtime together in Washington uh, over the years. Uh, but here's, here's a senator and he's not even at the time was on the agriculture committee, but he 
you know, he knew we were based in Minnesota, from Minnesota, and man, he wanted to help. Uh, and so he and I talked a lot about what he could do to help us with Farm Bill. And, uh, uh, and as you know, Paul's got an incredibly colorful legacy out there. It's mm-hmm. one of the probably the half dozen most left-leaning members of the Senate the Senate has ever seen. So, uh, so here I decide I'm going to bring him to a state meeting in Minnesota, one of our state chapter meetings. And I mean, I had staff or some of our own staff were telling me, are you nuts? You're bringing, you're bringing that little guy. He's a, he's a short, tiny little Mm -hmm. guy hunched over. Uh, Well, listen, the the long, the the short end of the story is uh, he came to Wilmer, Minnesota uh, and spoke at our state meeting and he and his wife, Sheila were there. Uh, By the time he was done speaking, the crowd literally jumped to their feet in a, in a rousing a standing ovation for him. Uh, that was pretty awesome. He deserved it. Yeah. Uh, and Paul passed away early, too early as well as you know, Bob. And, and uh, um, I, I remember telling a, a paper afterwards that I was hopeful that, that sportsmen could somehow, some way understand how helpful he was to, to their interests uh, over time. Great guy. Yeah, yeah he was. You, you talk so highly of his role um, on conservation. And, and the person that sort of has replaced him both in position and in, I, I guess, the, the way I perceive how you hold them in very high regard is Senator Amy Klobuchar. Oh, and, yeah. Is that an accurate? Yeah. Um, oh, absolutely. Assessment? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, Senator Klobuchar, Amy, uh, it's, I think it's pretty cool. She's elected, she's inducted as a United States Senator. Her very first in-state, back-in-state meeting after she was inducted into the Senate comes home. She comes to uh, Breezy Point for a Minnesota state meeting. And I mean, this is a, boy, this is a long time ago. And, uh, I recall she was kind of nervous and, and, you know, we talked a little bit about uh, what she might want to be talking about. And, and then, you know, 10 years, years later or so, you know, she's been to numerous meetings. We've worked on a number of farm bills together. She's got some great staff on our team. And I tell you what, um, she's just, she has just picked up and become a real champion uh, for uh, Pheasants Forever and for you know, all of us that care about conservation on that landscape out there for whatever reason. Hmm. She's the best. So, you know, as a, as a government affairs guy, I know you're sensitive of, I went two Democrats back to back, so I, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll get a Republican so, in there. I'm, just, I'm going through names uh, that I'm thinking about. Senator John Thune. And if, oh, yeah. if there were ever going to be a, a mixed presidential ticket, a John Thune, Amy You're really Klobuchar, pushing me now, aren't you? Yeah. A John Thune, Amy Klobuchar, whichever, you know, vice in, okay. you know, whichever order they take, I'd vote for that. You're not hearing me disagree with that. Okay? <laughs> hey, they're, they're, both, they're both great. They both care deeply. Uh, about what we do as an organization. Uh, John Thune is, is, a, 
an incredible pheasant hunter as well. He loves pheasant hunting. And uh, of course, he's from South Dakota. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, Senator Thune has been a, a, a champion for us for a long, long time. He he helped celebrate, Bob, you were there, the very first CRP safe project in the nation. Mm-hmm. It's in South Dakota. Yeah, outside of uh, Brookings. Benefit pheasants. It's outside Brookings somewhere. Wasn't it a tree planting or something? And a, uh, I know there were some tree plantings involved and some native grass restoration. So I remember speak, yep. speaking at it with you. And, and that's all thanks to Senator Thune. And, you know, we've talked about too many individuals hmm. in D.C. now, Bob. I got to tell you, uh, a big part of this is the staff that are behind those names. Uh, there have been some incredible staff. Um, I met staff at my very, I think, I think the one of the first meetings, uh, public meetings I participated in was a joint Senate and House hearing in Aberdeen, South Dakota, back in the early 90s. Hmm. I met staff people there that were working with uh, Tim Johnson, uh, then a, a representative that became a senator and just another great supporter of the CRP program and what it was doing for South Dakota. And, and of course, now we're working with Senator Thune and his team. So I'm, I am going to go back to a couple specific names that I just want to give. Sure. John Dingle is another name. Oh, man. You hold yeah. in extremely high regard. Uh, what an, what, just what an incredible honor to, to meet uh, John Dingle and to, and to work with him. Uh, I testified before him a couple, three times uh, in the Congress on various uh, programs related to wetlands. Uh, um, the, I think the last one was the Detroit River International Wildlife Refuge, uh, Dingle Refuge, and uh, or it was Wetlands Loan Act or something like mm-hmm. that. But uh, uh, what an honor just to work with him and, and to sit with him because, of course, the congressman sat as a member of the Migratory Bird Commission. So as a, in my position on NACA Council, we would present slates of projects to the commission mm. for the final approval for funding to move forward. And uh, uh, a real treat. Uh, I mentioned uh, you were appointed and reappointed under four different U.S. presidents. You've worked on farm bills under four different U.S. presidents, President Clinton, President George W. Bush, President Obama, and current President uh, Donald Trump. Any, which presidential uh, president or and or the administration stands out in your mind as being the most productive on our policy, our conservation issues? Hmm. Well, I guess I'd have to look, uh, I guess I'd have to first look and point out that if, if you're talking about a specific program like CRP, uh, there is a great deal of administrative leeway in how the program is administered. Um, and I can't help but look at the consistency we had over the years uh, with uh, uh, the Obama administration and CRP on the landscape from, say, the nineteen. 19- 90 through 2010 during that period. So you're talking about, you know, a combination of President Bush uh, as well in there. 
Um, a big part of this is about the agencies and the individuals that are appointed and whether or not they're going to work with you. Hmm. And uh, uh, we had some consistency through the years. Um, we had some open doors uh, or we opened some. Uh, and, uh, you know, those avenues are what keeps those programs up and running and keeps them successful. Um, today, today we're at a, a really, really challenging point for CRP right now. Um, we're at the lowest level of enrollment since 1987. Um, yet we've had a secretary that said, I'm going to have a fully enrolled in program by the end of the year. Um, without some additional changes, I just don't see how that happens. And I'm worried about it. Uh, I'm worried about the future. And, and I do think people should make their voices heard right now about their priorities. How do they make their voices heard? Well, it's just... Take, take advantage of the opportunities to talk to their members of Congress. Uh, talk to the administration directly. Uh, tell them how desperately we need uh, an additional general CRP sign-up right now. Hmm. And it has to happen uh, very soon. And uh, it's going to be critical because we're very quickly going to be involved in the debate of the over the 2023 Farm Bill uh, that... Uh, well, I guess somebody else can worry about that one. <laughs> uh, let's be honest. I know you already worry about that one. Uh, yeah, I am. I am. We've uh, like we're strong. We're struggling with this administration right now on, on getting the program in the ground. What should the twenty twenty three farm bill look like? Well, one of the things that I've seen, you know, over several farm bills is that we are always oversubscribed for many, many different conservation programs. And if you look at, at a number of things happening, and especially if you pull in what needs to happen with climate related issues and what needs to happen with uh, ag landscapes that are dealing with more frequent and more extreme weather changes, you know, the, the answer is conservation. The answer is conservation. And in my view, you know, we're at the point where we should get serious about a doubling or a tripling of, of many of those programs, uh, just based upon need, based upon what we need to be doing in the future uh, for a healthy, strong farm and ranch land landscape. I hear you advocating for 60 million acre CRP. You know, I, I tell you what, um, you know, for a lot of years, CRP was at its best when we hovered around a 40 million acre authorization mm -hmm. and we hovered uh, above 30 million acres enrolled annually, consistently for, say, 20, 25 years. We've struggled uh, with the demise of CRP on the landscape. It's time to put it back. It's time to think more seriously about climate. It's time to think about, you know, the evolving CRP that we've talked about today yeah. and what it can do on the landscape. To do that, uh, yeah, uh, I think the number is 60. So I'm looking at my list and there's a name that I haps, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up as part of this. Your name's... Are, in my mind, are constantly linked together when we talk about farm bills and conservation. And that's Colin Peterson. 
uh, we, we can't do a podcast with you about conservation without bringing up Colin Peterson. How did the relationship where the two of you became, I don't, I don't know if the right way to categorize it is close, but there's a rapport there that doesn't exist with any, with you and any other elected official that I'm aware of. How did that develop? Well, uh, uh, pure and simple, and uh, I'm surprised we got this far through this discussion without talking about Colin. Uh, you know, if you put put all the politics aside, put all we talked about, about bipartisan building this and that on all sides to get things done, uh, if we didn't have Colin, we would not have CRP today, hmm. period. Uh, it's in, in many, many ways his program. Is that and because of... Is that one well, moment in time, or is that well, the protector of CRP over decades? Well, I, over decades, but it all goes back to, I think, one of uh, my initial meetings with Colin. Uh, Jeff and I met with Colin, and it was shortly after he was elected to Congress in the, uh, in the early 90s, and he met with us, and, and he was adamant. Uh, he had seen what Soil Bank did on the landscape. And he said, if I'm ever in a chance to keep CRP, and so we don't lose it like we, we lost the soil bank, hmm. uh, I'm going to do something about it. And uh, he's been there ever since, period. Um, and, and yeah, we've got a special relationship. We, we got to do a little, uh, do a little hunting together on every now and then and, and uh, chase a few roosters and uh and some other things and uh uh you know he's just been a real champion for for sportsmen and sportswomen in dc on, on crp so i've you know i've got a list of dozens of names of folks that you've worked with from secretaries of agriculture to presidents to you know Bob Dole, Tom Harkin, Tom Osborne, oh, yeah. yeah, Tim Walls, Pheasants Forever Life member. Who, who else? Who who have I missed that um, that you want to make mention of? It's oh, been yeah. considerably important to habitat and conservation. Well, it's a long list, so we're, we're in trouble. We're going to miss somebody, but you know, you got to you got to go back to the to the uh, Dole and Dashell days and, and Colin for the initial big reauthorization. Uh, Congressman Bill Barrett from Nebraska, uh, one of the first people I testified in front of a long, long time ago, a uh, huge part uh, of CRP on the landscape. Um, Congressman, <laughs> the Congressman from Michigan, uh, Nick Smith years ago. Oh my God, he terrified me. So, well, well, two things there. We had never taken our chairman to Washington, D.C., and the, our chair at the time was Dr. Gordon Geyer, just a wonderful, wonderful man. And I am working with the Michigan uh, office try, delegation trying to get a meeting set up before we get him to D.C., and I'm getting nervous that I'm not getting calls back, you know, and, and sometimes that happens. You have to be persistent and polite and patient, and sometimes that's hard to do. And so I'm not hearing back, not hearing back. Finally, finally get a hold of somebody in that office. And I tell them how I want to bring my chairman of our board of directors in, blah, 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 you know. And then I had made a mistake. I, I should have, in the first 
breath said his name. I mm. didn't. The minute I said, Dr. Gordon Geyer, this, this gal on the end of the lines, oh, Uncle Gordy. <laughs> and and we, were, we were in. And huh. everybody, everybody knew him. He was great. But uh, the congressman from Michigan, I hadn't met yet. And it was, I think Bill Barrett was chairing the subcommittee at the time, again, from Nebraska. And, you know, back in the days, you know, Mr. Chairman, I'm so-and-so, I'm Dave Nomson, and I'm here on behalf of Pheasant Street. You're reading this testimony verbatim. It's the most boring thing you could ever do, but that's how you did it back then. And you read every word. Perfect. Well, I start through that first paragraph. I didn't get to the second paragraph. And I hear this congressman say, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Chairman, I, I object. And I, I look up, and, of course, they're on the dais above you, looking down at you, and you're nervous because you haven't done this very often, and it's it's kind of unique. Uh, and I am just thinking to myself, oh, my God, I haven't even said anything yet. <laughs> I'm in terrible trouble. And it, as it turns out, it was Congressman Nick Smith from Michigan. Uh, who you're already and, scared of. Who? Yeah, well – Intimidated by him. Intimidated by I'd never met him. And he turns to, to Chairman Barrett and he says, Mr. Chairman, uh, I haven't even read this man's testimony yet, but you know, based upon the number of groups that he's here representing today, I'd like to offer him an additional two minutes for his testimony. And it was just like, Ooh, I could I could breathe again, man. Oh gosh, that was a lot of fun. Ooh, it ended up being a lot of fun, but I was sure nervous, worried at the time. What was the most uh, nerve wracking moment uh, that you've had? You know, maybe it's testifying, maybe it's meeting a president, maybe it's getting up in front of our, our members. What what made you the most nervous? Uh, uh, you know what? If yeah, there's times testifying. You know, you put get put in some challenging situations and. And you'd be required to think a little bit about the delicacy of your answer before you put something out there. And you just learn to deal with it. Hmm. Um, and I mean, it's all about people and relationships, whether it's members or it's staff members and congressional staff are incredible. Uh, I've known a number of them for decades now. You know, uh, when you finally get to the point, you're getting the calls and the emails and the text is, text messages that you know, two o'clock in the morning before mm. markups, you, you know, you're being effective and you're, you're helping get something done. Yeah. Answering questions. Uh, you know, it's, it's, yeah. Stress doesn't really come into play if you're, if you're, if you're ready for it and, and you know, you, you remind yourself, Hey, wait a minute, I've got the backing of this whole organization and the expertise and, you know, they're trying to learn from you and, and, and your experiences. So, uh, it's, it, it just kind of came with the job though, too. And you got, you dealt with it. That is a perfect transition to, you know, you've talked about representing our members. Um, you've talked about going to state meetings and that's when, you know, I, you, you like working with elected officials in DC, but you love, representing our members that's something yeah. that i am i really respect and admire yeah. well, that you you always have the best interests of our members through science in, in your mind and in your heart 
and you do light up when we talk about state meetings. Tell, tell us yeah. about that a little bit. What, well, that's, what that connection uh, means. I mean, that's a great description. Is is you did I did what I did in D.C. because uh, it's needed to be done. But when I would come back, and especially when I would go to state meetings all around the country and meet with our individual chapter leaders and our individual members uh, or in group sessions, you know, the, the passion and the dedication and the commitment that they all exhibit mm-hmm. and that they all care about. And it just, it's what kept me going uh, through all these years. It's why I stayed as long as I did. Uh, with pheasants forever is because of those members and and working with them. Uh, there's just nothing better. Uh, they are just the greatest the greatest people that we could possibly have uh, as members and leaders. And I think the pinnacle is when you brought some of those members to DC, including our, our National Youth Leadership Council. Those those are the moments, at least that. I perceive you're going to miss the most in retirement. You know, it is. Um, and, you know, helping take um, and develop a program that would that would take our voices directly to D.C., whether it was members or chapter leaders, farmers and landowners. Uh, you mentioned the National Youth Leadership Council. I'll never, ever forget it. I wish we'd have done it immediately. You know, Cheryl Riley finally beat me up enough, and I said, <laughs> yes, let's take Let's take uh, a small delegation to D.C. We did, and it's one of the best experiences of my life and hmm. my career. Uh, we took a small delegation. They they worked hard. They gave great presentations to members of Congress, uh, both in the House and in the Senate. And I met with the administration, and uh, you know, uh, one of those one of those first trips. Uh, we had a small group of them that wanted to see the sunrise from the Lincoln Memorial, uh, which is like five o'clock in the morning or five fifteen or something, you know. And and uh, but we all got there. Uh, I'd raided the kitchen in the hotel for breakfast food and milks and juices and all that kind of bagels and that kind of stuff. So we had a great big bag of goodies for breakfast. And we sat on the steps of the uh, Lincoln Memorial, uh, watched the sun up. Uh, we actually sat on the step that's got the uh, plaque in it from uh, uh, where Dr. King stood when he addressed the crowd a long time ago. And Cheryl and I talked about that with the kids. Uh, had an inc- just an incredible experience. And then we walked all the way to the Capitol uh, and uh, attended more meetings with members up there. You've, yeah. ta- you've talked about bringing some these kids to meet politicians. You've talked about bringing members to meet elected officials. You've talked about, you know, 60 million acre CRP in the 23 farm bill and reaching out to your elected officials. How uh, the jaded side of me is always like, you know, our, those folks aren't listening. The elected officials just, they're going to do what they want based on special interests. You've seen that jaded view get broken apart by things that we've done that have actually made a difference. Get, how, how much impact, how, how, much, how impactful is our voice, whether it be through email or 
or uh, those meetings? Can we have a difference in 2020 and beyond? No, it's it's not. Can you? It, the the question, Bob, is is more accurately how much of a difference will we make? Uh, is is a better statement for that because I've I have seen over many many years what the power and the strength of uh, well put together voices all pushing for you know similar items or or results in Washington D.C. and you know. Beyond all of the noise and all of the of the pitched rhetoric in D.C., that's what they do. That's their jobs. Mm-hmm. Make a difference for their constituents, and and uh, so we do need to be there. And uh, perseverance uh, is critical. Uh, you've got to you've got to just continue to to push uh, for good, solid public policy and changes in our area. And uh, I've seen it happen. It's going to continue to happen. Uh, and so get engaged. Uh, it, it can and will make a difference out there. The best example that kind of corrects my jaded at, um, attitude is uh, the story of Dan Ash, <laughs> the government shutdown right before pheasant season. I uh, believe 2014-ish. Tell us that story. Well, I tell you what, it's, uh, uh, yeah, we had a, a shutdown of the government. And of course, uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service that, that Dan Ash, Director Ash, was, was leading, uh, you know, oversees all of the waterfowl production areas that are in many of the key pheasant states. And uh, they have historically been, you know, little gems out there. Uh, not only for waterfowl production, but uh, for pheasant hunting uh, in the fall. And to even think that you're going to close those areas to the to the hunting public on opening weekend, it's just not going to happen. And uh, but they were um, posturing that they oh, had to. Oh, they were. They were. They were saying they had to, and that they would be closed. Absolutely. But. Um, don't mess with sportsmen. Don't mess with hunters before opening weekend on access to their favorite lands. Uh, because I tell you what, uh, their voices were heard uh, through Pheasants Forever. And I tell you what, uh, you know, the story ends by me taking a picture where my son and I had legally went out on a WPA and harvested a few roosters. And I sent that picture to Director Ash afterwards, uh, how we had a great opening day, because as you know, they did reverse their decision and open those areas to the public. Within about two days of an action alert, um, they had reversed because they were overwhelmed with calls and emails. Not just Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, but but an awful lot of our members were the Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and, and that's to your point, uh, working with the coalitions of groups. I mean, we talked a little bit about AWCP. We now work a lot at Pheasants Forever with the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, uh, which is critical to bringing those voices together and helping us all get engaged in some really, really important uh, conservation public policy topics in DC. They make a difference. So we've, We've covered a lot of ground. 
we've covered CRP, NACA, public lands, LWCF, climate, uh, transportation. What have we missed? What's out there on the horizon that uh, we should be thinking about that's going to create habitat for the next generation? Well, I think I mentioned, uh, well, first of all, I think, I think um, you don't always have to reinvent the wheel in D.C. There is a great suite of programs right now, right now that's available. We talked about the oversubscribed demand for many of the, of the uh, USDA conservation programs. You know, we've, we've, we've talked about the need for uh, additional funding for, for NACA. Uh, so there's a lot of things that we can support uh, just with expansion and, and keeping the good programs up and running as well. Uh, we've talked about climate change a little bit and how uh, successful uh, application of climate-related conservation programs uh, could be a huge step forward uh, uh, down the road. And... Uh, you know, that ag landscape is going to continually change. We've just got to keep looking at opportunities related to cropping systems and new technologies and and uh, everything else that's available out there. What's next for you? Well, you're already picking on me for baking the world's best wood-fired pizzas <laughs> Wednesday nights. Uh, you know... <laughs> I'm going to just take a deep breath or two for a, a few weeks here. I've got some plans for this fall to head a field a little bit. <laughs> and then uh, and then I'm also saying to myself, I've got something more to do out there. And so uh, stay tuned. Uh, and you will continue on NACA Council, right? That's an appointment that does extend uh, beyond Pheasants Forever. That's sort of directed for your, it, your position, right? It is. It's an individual appointment. Uh, I'm currently serving in that role, and I have indicated that I'd like to be reappointed. Uh, and so I'm hopeful that that will happen as well. And again, my work with uh, in the wetlands area would then continue. So uh, that, I'd enjoy doing that. Yeah. yeah. Any uh, final thoughts or words or words of wisdom for our listeners? Well. Um, no, I, I can't. I, well, listen, I, I do want to take a moment and uh, uh, thank my family. Uh, I was on the road a long, long time for 40 years. You know, Pop, I survived three hotel evacuations in Washington, D.C. over the years. Can you believe that? Two wow. fires. Two fires. And the third one was a uh, uh, one of the main pipes feeding the the, the rooftop pool broke. And so we had to evacuate the hotel. <laughs> I like was in midnight. a, I was in a hotel with you that flooded. That's the fort. That was in Michigan, <laughs> right? Yeah. Four times, four times, once a decade, it happens to me apparently. Well, and then um, I also know, you know, nine ah. 11 was, you were in Washington, DC. Yeah, I was. During Again, 9 and that, and that well, listen, a there's a tremendous amount of stress on your family. Um, yeah, and when you use the word family, uh, in response to that, I'm thinking uh, there's two families. Um, there's the PF family. Um, and uh, that was a huge help to getting me through 9-11. Uh, 
Uh, the PF family has been together for years. We've had, we've just had an incredible team. Yeah. And so I want to thank all the members of the PF team. Uh, and uh, I also want to say thank you to Melanie, my wife of, of 40 plus years. Uh, boy, Lord help her now. When I'm at home. <laughs> she uh, must like wood fired pizza. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and today it's actually kind of cool. Today is July 10th. Well, for years and years, Naka council was always over that time period. And it's also my daughter's birthday. So happy birthday, Amanda today. Um, uh, I'm finally here for you and I'm not working. So, uh, I wish her a happy birthday and my son, Jason, uh, you know, my son turned, uh, best friend hunting partner. Uh, we will have, we'll share some good times at field. Uh, yet this fall and i hope you're in my paths cross again oh you know they will it's been uh we've had some fun working together too um and i and i like to think that we've made a difference so thank you very much yeah it's been i know we have yeah absolutely and it's as i've mentioned it's always been an honor to work with you um i'll i'll leave uh this very very important episode with some quotes from howard vincent President and CEO about, about Dave. During his first two decades with our organization, Dave Nomson was the face of the Conservation Reserve Program, CRP, within the wildlife community. In the last decade, our role as an organization has continued to broaden to the full suite of conservation programs representing $30 billion. Those include wetlands, NACA, public lands, LWCF, pollinators, transportation, energy, sage grouse, prairie chickens, monarch butterflies, and so much more. Dave has been the catalyst, catalyst for our organ, organization's evolution. He has been a tremendous advocate for bird hunters across America, and our members have definitely been fortunate to have him representing their interests all these years. Howard Vincent, President and CEO, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. That's uh, those are some pretty powerful, amazing words that I would love to be retiring on when when that time comes. But but for today, they're for Dave Nompson, one of the the greatest guys that uh, as a human being, but one of the best people that bird hunters have had. Um, backing them up for the better part of four decades. And whether or not you know it, Dave's contributions have helped put your dogs on point uh, and birds in your bag. Dave, it's been an absolute honor. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate it very much. Good hunting. <laughs> Good hunting indeed. <laughs> All right, folks. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of On the wing podcast with pheasants forever and quail forever i'm bob st pierre saying always follow the dog something good will rise thanks for listening <laughs>